We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome we to the Layman's to Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology for everyday life. So it could still be high and robust, um, but we we're concepts are cool, but what what does it what does it mean to my busy wife who doesn't have time to read the Bible often? Like what what does the faith have to do with her own life? Um, or someone like me who loves reading a thick book with many um, Latin quotes, like is that Christian of me? So anyways, I I'm really excited to have today on the line the living legend William A. Dearness, Bill Dearness, um, who's been grappling with these things since literally since the 60s. <laughs> That's amazing. So William has, I, I pieced this together. There's no autobiography yet, I think, but I think this is right. He spent time as a missionary. I, I want to say, I don't know if it's the Philippines or Nairobi, but so spent time as a missionary. He studied under Hans Ruckmacher, which just by itself is so cool to me. Uh, time at Wheaton, Strasbourg, Cambridge, which I think he was at Cambridge twice. I don't know. We'll find out. Berkeley, Fuller, Regent, um, Columbia. He's concerned himself with art, worship, the Old Testament, cultural theology, cross-cultural gospel reception, American culture and Christianity. Okay, so he's also helped launch various centers and even like book series, not just like a book, but series of books and pinned a few books along the way, including a book that was just released December, I think it was like December 14th, called The Facts on the Ground, A Wisdom Theology of Culture, and that's from Cascade Books. So once again, The Facts on the Ground, A Wisdom Theology of Culture. And we already know, since it's on the ground, it's not up in the ivory tower, so I appreciate that. Um, now, I was wondering, I don't know if this is a taxing question, but for you, because um, there's not many, I feel like there's a lot of sort of one trick ponies out there. But the reason I did that intro is to show you that you've sort of been, you've, you've concerned yourself with a lot of things. And so I was wondering if you would be willing to almost give us a little, and feel free to go as long or as short as you want, but a, like an overview of basically your life and your journey and if you could, along the way, be like, and this is where I wrote this book, and this is what was going on in my mind, almost a, a, uh, a biography, but also behind the scenes, what you were thinking, what was motivating you, what you were struggling with, and then what you got excited about. Well, thank you, Jason. It's, a, it's an honor for me to be, be having this conversation and to be here. Um, I think you, you were absolutely right, actually. I did spend time both in Nairobi and the Philippines. Okay. Philippines were missionaries for eight years. And then Nairobi, we started going in the late uh, 1980s and we went back like eight or 10 times to teach and to be involved. So because of both of those experiences, I, I began to think about how different ways people hear the good news and hear the gospel. And so that, motivated me to write, how is it that Americans hear the gospel? And I, I, I think that we have a particularly unique take on the gospel. And so I wanted to talk about that. Mm. And then just after that, I wrote about a book about how we learn theology from different parts of the world, learning about theology from the third world. Yeah. After that, <clears throat> at Fuller, I became Dean and I went, but I was really preoccupied with um, the question of the relationship of the arts and art and especially visual art to theology. That was what I did my PhD on. I did it on George Rouault, the famous uh, French Catholic artist. So that's always been a part of my, uh, my uh, interest. Mm -hmm. In the 1990s, while I was Dean, I started teaching theology and art and beginning to write things about it. And uh, published, for example, Visual Faith in 2001, which tries to understand how do we think about our faith 
in terms of visual culture, visual arts, and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, after that, uh, I, I began to realize, and that was about the time actually that the Brehm Center for Worship, Theology, and the Arts began, which is about 2000. And so I was dean and I decided, no, I want to I want to be a part of this center. So I was a, a, a part of the founding of it. There were several of us that that founded the center. And thanks to Bill and Dee Brim, uh, who provided the support and uh, endowment for that, which it, it's still going strong with now with uh, with new leadership. But um, I mean, to realize that a lot of people, well, the arts are good and all, but I don't look at myself really as an artist right and so i realized that i was not communicating things that really impacted very many people because uh, the, the arts are considered a kind of elite practice yeah for people and so that's when i wrote my book in 2011 poetic faith god and the poetics of everyday life and that that was a, a turning point, I think, for my thinking, because I began to realize that what people need to know is how God is present in their everyday life, but especially how God shows up in particularly those practices that they, the things they love, the projects that they're engaged in, their family life, their, their work life, uh, the little projects, they, their hobbies, all these things are the reason we get up in the morning. Yeah. You know, this is what makes life, gives it its meaning and texture and, and life. Yeah. And so we got to, we got to figure out, is God interested in we those We got to find that out. Yeah, that we got to find out where's God in that. You know, about this time, I, I remembered that C.S. Lewis wrote his famous, The Problem of Pain. And he said, Pain is God's megaphone. Aha. You see what experience of suffering, maybe it's God's presence is there in the midst of suffering. Now, I was taking the opposite pain, the place where I was saying, well, maybe God is also present in our projects, what I call our poetic projects, the things we like to do just for fun. Yes. The, 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 the nights out with our family, the walks on the beach, the, you know, our, our stamp collection, uh, yes. our, our rooting for the Rams, go Rams, you know, uh, all of these things. I used to think, well, maybe these things aren't all that important. God is busy with more important things. When I think, well, wait a minute, these are things we love and they should be ways in which God gets our attention. So I wouldn't say that beauty and the poetics of life, uh, they're not God's megaphone, but there may be ways in which God is whispering to us. Mm -hmm. In other words, maybe that's way God wants to get our attention and say, this expresses my own love and concern for you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to say when I see a mother cooing over their newborn and just gaga over it, I say, ah, that's a theological reality. That's yes. how much God loves us. Yes. And we got to connect these things. Yes. So, and that's basically in, in a long introductory form, that's what's behind the facts on the ground. Hmm. The facts on the ground are there. On the one hand, there are responsibility. Hmm. There are things we do. Uh, there are work projects, there are family, there are things that we are responsible to, to, to work on. But at the same time, there are things that God is busy with too. Mm -hmm. That's the connection that I'm trying to make in that book. And I, I, I hope it comes through. Yeah. Now, so you said, you're asking the question, how is God present in everyday life? especially in everyday projects. I, I love that you even went there. I, I'm not sure how many people go there, right? As far, your, you, your examples were nights out with your friends, rooting for the Rams and walks on the beach. That really is like, that's 
that's pretty much the nuts and bolts of life. I think yes. we, we've got Sundays covered, you know, mm-hmm. of course we could always nuance and we're, we've got, we're actually, we got vocation, if you will, occupation nine to five, pretty good, but we don't have much of the 501 to bedtime or just even the mundane minutes that make up those times, which include, yeah, like walking from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. my question for you there is, you said perhaps this is a time where God whispers to us. Um, so my question for you is, so what have you found, for example, in like in the walk on the beach? What, what might be a message that God whispers to you at that moment? And then what are you to do with that? Another way of putting it is, it, must, it meet, must that time be sort of redeemed, if you will, by contemplating God? Or can I just as a Christian walk on the beach and be like, oh, my wife is so beautiful. What a, what a great night. And not be thinking about God in that moment. Is that absolutely? Okay? Yeah, absolutely. So what I, what I try to, to sketch out in my book is that we do our best in response to God by responding to creation. That is what we spend our time doing. Everything that we do in life is a, is a response to certain prompts of creation, sunset, beaches, walks on the beach, sports, all these things. These are all prompts that, that I say God has made possible because of the, the beauty of creation and the goodness of creation and the order of creation. So it's that 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 allows us to actually make sense of things and even more to enjoy things. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I think what we want to do when we enjoy our walk with our wife is, is say, what a, I just love being here with you. And that's part of what I, what I find most meaningful in life. And that's because this is this moment, this person, this relationship, this beauty of the sunset, this beach, these are, these, are, these are provisions of the loving God. And that's, that's the wisdom that I'm getting at in the book, The Facts on the Ground. No matter how much I hear that, my disposition is still like, but it would be better if I was praying right now. Or it would be better if at least I was whispering, thank you, God at that exact moment, a constant, you know, no matter what I hear. um, But I mean, so, so I I guess I almost want to have you drill down even further and I'll set it up by this quote that you have. So your new book, the facts on the ground, a wisdom theology of culture, you say, quote, God's purposes for creation underline both worlds. And in a second, you could talk about what worlds you're speaking of here. Um, Then you say, the story of God's creation and that of redemption in Christ are not two stories. They are a single story of creation and recreation, end quote. And then that goes back to what you just said. You said, our best responding to God is by responding to creation. So can you explain what you mean by sort of those both worlds and then and then how exactly, I mean, for me, I, I'm, I'm new, new, you know, newer to the Kuyperian tradition and starting, sort of understanding, oh, okay, if I have a, a robust theology of creation, I'm, I'm feeling good. But then again, there's almost this, sometimes this disconnect. I'm like, well, what, what does um, the cultural mandate, okay, here I am, I'm going to go and I'm going to reflect his image and I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to pick an orange and I'm going to um, squeeze it for my children. And I'm going to do this in the face of God, you know, with my family watching, and I'm going to do it with gratitude. Okay. But what does that have to do with Jesus? Like he died for me. (laughs) What does that, what does that orange juice session have to do with Jesus? (laughs) Well, it has everything to do with it because what Jesus came to do was to, to, to give fuller meaning to that, that 
gift of an orange, that gift of create, the gifts of creation. Mm. And one of the things that I try to do in this book, especially in my chapter on Christ, is to ask, now, what is it exactly that Christ came to do? Now, we, of course, we know that he came to die on the cross for our sins, but is that simply to get us to heaven? Or is it really about what creation intimates, which is that it's about new creation? And what is it about the teaching of Jesus that gives meaning to all of that? Hmm. And one of the things I've been helped with that I quote many, uh, several times in the book is that redemption is, the, is for the sake of creation, not hmm. the other way around. Yeah. In other words, redemption is simply what allows creation to work better and to work well and to find its fullest meaning. Hmm. And, and that's what Christ came to do. And so his teaching, his teaching about turning the other cheek, about, about I think one of the most important things is there in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, consider the lily, mm. see how it grows. I re, that was Mako Fujimara who first taught me that. He said, look, yeah. to see how it grows, you got to spend time with it. You got to watch it grow. That mm. takes time. Mm. So then... What's the meaning of that? Well, the meaning of that in the context is this helps us understand how much God loves us and is taking care of us. Hmm. That's the center of that. Hmm. Now, what does it have to do with prayer? Well, I think what, what you're really getting at there is what Paul says later in, in his epistle. We need to learn how to pray without ceasing. That is, have, have a developing sense of God's presence and and that's not something for the monks to do it's something that all of us need to do mm. is to try to understand what it means and this is you referred to Kuiper who basically I I is my hero in many ways so I'm I'm in his tradition it, is that uh, we we do that before the face of God but that's before the loving face of God the father who calls us home and calls us to to, to his service and to his, to his uh, work on his mm. new creation. Mm. 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 So, so that, that's what, uh, what we're, uh, we're after for that. And it seems to me it's not complicated. Yeah, hey, what, what, what does God want people to do with everything that he gives them? Well, I think ultimately at the end of the day, what he wants to do is to get them to say, thank you. Mm-hmm. And to recognize that there is, we're doing this before the face of God, mm. that, that God is in conversation with every single person in the, in, in that that's what it means to be created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So God is in conversation with everyone. All the people need, I, what God wants is to people say, hey, all these gifts that I'm giving you, I just want you to say, hey, thank you. Mm-hmm. After mm-hmm. all, Eucharist is at the center of our worship, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And Eucharisto in Greek means thank you. <laughs> so it's not complicated, you know? So that's, that's what that's all about, you know? So, you know, this is super, you know, analytical of me and, you know, but this is just the way my brain works. So, mm-hmm. you know, some folks might just write me off, but I want to be fortified to consider the lilies for the glory of God. So mm-hmm. can you, is it possible? I don't know. It's, it's pretty intense, but can you give me a snapshot of that 10 minute scene in real time? What is happening? Coram Deo and Coram Mundo, if you will, mm-hmm. right. As I'm in that exact, in that exact moment, here I am. Maybe I'm with my wife and my kids I see my kids over to the right. They set up a swing on the beach. So they're swinging around, just having a good time. They're not thinking of God, but I know that they know that God is king. That's what Mm -hmm. they said. They say, Jesus is the king. Okay. My wife and I, we, um, we don't love God with all our heart, souls, and mind, but we want to, and we know that Mm -hmm. we're clothed with Christ so that in Christ, we do in fact, love God with all our Mm -hmm. heart, soul, mind. So we've come to see the good news is actually good. So we're pretty happy with our lives, but in that exact moment, we're not thinking um, of the gospel. 
necessarily or the work of Christ necessarily. We're thinking of our kids, we're considering our kids and we're considering the lilies. So what are my marching orders within a context like that? And um, what, what are God's thoughts of me at that moment? Our marching orders are to take care of creation, to love it, to be good stewards of it, to be a part of it and realize that we're a part of it, and then eventually to be grateful for that. Um, I, I think it's, it's, there's a key theological movement here that's, that's I hope, clear in, this, in, in my book, and that is that you don't go to creation by way of God. In other words, we don't encounter God and then catch on to what creation is about. It's the other way around. Mm. God always wants us to come to him through creation because we're human. We breathe wow. air. We, we drink the water of, 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 of that God has given us and so yes. forth. So we're part of it. We're not separate above it. We're part of it. Okay. And now that's a, that's a mission that resonates with the kind of neo-paganism that's going on around yeah, it. We, we, yeah. we got we to gotta hitch ourselves to that, to that understanding. Yeah, yeah. That because God is there in, in that, but we get to God through creation. In other words, we, we take care of creation and God says, that's good. Oh that's God. good. I like that. <laughs> so so uh, that, that and so in a certain way, we, we discover the goodness of creation mm -hmm. and we're grateful mm -hmm. to the scientists that discover all the things that we need, the vaccines that take care of us, mm -hmm. the treatments that now we have that take care of us when we get COVID and all the rest. We're, we're grateful for that. But there's even something more significant about that. And that is that these people have discovered something about creation that was there all the time, yeah, but yeah. they didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And they discovered it. And I think God says, hey, that's good. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. He, he, in, fact, in fact, he takes credit for it. Now, this is, what, this is what blew me away when it dawned on me in the scriptures. And that is that, that God throughout scripture not only affirms what we do, but takes credit for it. Wow. So that it turns out taking good care of creation also turns out to be serving God in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we never do that perfectly, and we're always we're all, we're always imperfect servants of God. Yes. So that's to given that's why we need redemption at the end of the day and what i'm talking about is not salvific but it's it's healing mm -hmm. and um it it it's important it's it's central to what it means to be human right now i think that's one of the things that we need to recover in our polarization that's going on right now between the right and the left and all we need to come back to 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 affirm here our common humanity that we are mm. share and that we don't agree on everything but that we do share the gifts that god has put into creation totally i mean i even know <clears throat> i even know yeah kuiper you know he you know in in his own context with like the smallpox and he was saying you know he had his views on the nature and extent of the government saying who like uh what 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 reach should be allowed by the government and what shouldn't so you know you could take that either way but one thing he opens that whole section with is he's he's saying this is a good thing like the fact that these um these vaccinations have been created it, basically anything i mean that that is a robust doctrine of creation right as we're um we're bringing to bear the the hidden potential in the earth and whatnot Amen. Yeah. Now, now before I, I go on, this is this just this yeah. section alone has been so cool. But um, for the those who like to categorize things like myself, what <laughs> theological term or just whatever term or or umbrella 
do we place over this um, that scene um, where we are enjoying creation in the face of God and and um, you know enjoying the lilies and our kids? It, like, what do we what do we call that that scenario? So so that and the reason I ask is so that when this next person is involved with their little project of stamps, they could say, just almost remind themselves. So why is this not only okay, but it's celebrated? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think what, what you're asking is really a, a fundamental question. And that is, what do we mean by theology? And uh, what I mean by theology is, is what, what we call at Fuller a theology of culture, which is what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And it's asking the question, uh, where and how does God show up in, in life and in, in cultural artifacts? You know, my colleague Rob Johnson wants to ask how he shows up in films. I want to ask how he shows up in the visual arts. But here we're talking about God. God is present in our everyday life, but he's especially interested in the things that we love because as Bonaventure, the medieval, great medieval theologian said, love is the movement of the soul to lead us to God. Ultimately, what what we want to see is that, that God's love not only affirms these lesser loves, but allows us to see them more deeply and to experience them more fully. As Augustine put it in his great first section of on Christian doctrine, our goal is that we need to learn to love all things in God and God in all things. See, that's, that's, that's the goal. And that's, that's what I'm trying to, to point out in, in my book. I love as a side note that, um, you know, I had, I had your book and then I wrote back and I'm like, you seem, I I think I wrote you, have you ever deal with Kuiper and Bobbing? And then like literally the next page after I sent you that you deal in great detail with, with their thoughts. Um, and I like, I'm not smart enough to actually run with their thoughts and even disagree with them or build upon them. I'm not, this is not, I don't, I don't know, just to me, it's brand new, but you've been dealing with this forever. And so I love that you built upon, nuanced, diverted. And then uh, even on your, your, your um, what's the name of your book where you, you did like a one-off of Hans Ruckmacher, where they book. Um, art, modern art and the life of a culture. And the life of a, I just love that. I think that's so cool. And um, I just can't believe I'm, I'm all I'm all bootlicking Rookmacher right now because I just got his a biography by I forgot her name maybe Leslie Martin or something and it's just so so cool and so I'm I, this is fun to be connected even twice removed right now um so you as you look back for your own life I mean just even the stuff you've shared right now is life giving you know um, a lot of the things that we hear that that have been stirring me lately and. And it's something that is part of you is a lot of the sayings that you've been that you've been saying. Um, I think even I think it was Rookmacher who said like, "What is Christianity for?" or whatever you know. Um, or um, basically, all these ideas of to be a Christian is to be a human, and this Irenaeus absolutely quote, the folly yeah. of God. All this yeah. thing stir, yeah. stirs me so much, and I think it's because I come from like a Baptist background. Where you know, I think a lot of us in America just thought, or at least from my tradition of the tradition of no tradition, I guess, just post revivalism, I just thought I had to be busy doing Christian stuff, right? So, anyways, that's something that you clearly that you clearly captured. I'm curious, and another thing for me personal is um, the the so-called law gospel distinction. You know, I'm not saying it's bulletproof that. But that has caused the or, or union with Christ, right? That is, and the active obedience of Christ. That's caused a great joy in my own life. And those are probably the two main things that I'm just like, you know what? This is, I just love this. I love belonging to Christ and in this world, blah, blah, blah. Now, I wonder for you, you've lived longer than me. As you look back on your own life, what sort of things 
either theological points or realizations or experiences have stuck with you and like these are the five things you're telling your grandkids like if you've only got a little bit of time if you're going to send out that telegram you know like machin did you know thank god for uh, the active obedience of christ no hope without it what what are the things that your <laughs> telegrams are going to say i'm going to say praise god for the good goodness of creation and relationships that that are possible because of that and the way in which that expresses God's love and his concern for us, like a mother concerned for their newborn and doing anything, anything possible to take care of that, mm. that newborn, sacrificing everything, even to the point of laying down their life. And, and yeah, that's, that's what I would like to get them to, to say. And, and also that the response that God wants is not not simply the, to follow some legal precedent here. And we could talk a lot about the law because there's some implications of what my book that suggests that the law is not something that God gave us, but it's, the, it's our discovery of the way the world works and God's affirmation of that, both in the Ten Commandments and especially in the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. So that, um, that is what I would like, I would hope to, to communicate. And, and the fact that it, it doesn't mean that we are less loving and engaged with the world. It means we're more engaged, more deeply engaged. Mm -hmm. And it's not all enjoyment either, because there's a lot of, the, a lot of suffering in the world. A lot of people who, whose lives are are, are, are a kind of slavery and you know so that we're, we're concerned about that and that's why wisdom doesn't save us the law doesn't save us we can't live without it as paul says but it doesn't save us it's only god's work god's deliverance god's action especially in christ in in the death and resurrection and the pouring out of the holy spirit that is what really ultimately saves us and save will save the world, basically. Yes. So, so we're, we're going to get onto that uh, project. That's God's ultimate project. And that's what gives our life, finally, its, its fullest meaning. Right. And I would hope that I, my, my kids could understand that. Mm. But see, if, if you just start with that, you know, this is that Sunday thing. People, they, they want to go back and root for the, the Rams. You know, they want to go back and they want to walk back on the beach. They don't bother you with that. I want, to, I want to have some fun. I want to enjoy this. Okay, that's okay. You can say, you know, that those things are okay. Totally. But, but you got to be working on what, what is really concerning to the heart of God. And that is the project of uh, of new creation but but that's something that's going on around us in the midst of us god is working on that from below in a certain sense not yeah. from above yeah yeah <clears throat> and i'm i i'm really worried as we said at the earlier about the future of of theology because mm -hmm. i think theology has disconnected itself too much yeah from these everyday questions of people's lives and people yeah. are not interested in that. Now, theologians are interested in it. I don't know if you know um, Miroslav's book and Matthew Craftsman's book on, on, on uh, theology. That's, that's pretty pessimistic yes. about the, the state of theology. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, I, I do. And I will say this. this. There's this book. This book called Redeeming the Routine by Robert Banks. Um, William Dearness wrote just a mere six pages. I think he wrote it in 93. Yeah. William, this six pages, like honestly, just that, just that alone was like, I feel like every Christian, just laity, every scholar, every professor just needs, needs that. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read a, a, a quote from that book. The book is Redeeming the Routine, Bringing Theology to Life. Like I said, do, do you just have a six-page intro there. Man, I, yeah. 
Um, here uh, you said, um, here, here's, here's what you say. You say, I still wonder what purposes do we theologians serve? <laughs> and it's funny, you know, and you wrote that in 93 and I know you, you, you have an idea of what you serve, but the entire thing is almost like you're saying about that Wolf, that Wolf book. It's sort of like, come on, you guys, like, come on, like really, what really, what really matters. And the fact that you've referenced a stamped collection is huge. I'm not a stamp collector. I collect matches from all over the world. I think that's cool. <laughs> yeah. But like, um, so my question for you is twofold. The first question is, how does one be, is the goal to be pious, like in the good word, not pietism, but pious, or is the goal to worship, or is the goal to experience God, or what, what, what is like the goal, and maybe you would just say, you know, you've already sort of hit it, this notion of gratitude and, and having this posture towards the new creation, what is the the telos? Is it glorifying God and enjoying forever? Like, what would you sort of say is is the telos? And unpacking that with a like, well, sort of, what does that mean in the context of the lilies or the stamp collection? Um, uh, but in all of your life, right? Not just mm -hmm. that one snapshot. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is, what have you seen theologians and, and scholars and professors? do with that or, or essentially what is the state of of theology right now and does it like you were saying does it have a future yeah I, I i have to start by sort of giving tribute to the movements of of this that have been taking place in 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 north america that issued in things like Regent College and Vancouver and New College Berkeley, where, where I was in the whole 1980s. And that's where I first, for example, encountered Robert Banks. Now, Robert Banks is a really interesting person. By the way, we always joked at Fuller that, that we had an ethics professor, Rob, that was named Rob Banks, you know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But he was, he was early on wrestling with God and everyday life to such an extent that he actually turned in his ordination in, in the Anglican church. He was an Anglican priest. And he actually turned it in because he felt like it wasn't doing what it needed to do to help people wake up to the presence of God in the whole of their life. And this dis distinction between worship and work, which is a, a fallacious distinction to begin with, and all of our work in a certain sense ought to be a form of worship, in the sense it ought to grow out of our sense of gratitude. Now, that, that sounds pretty idealistic for a person working on a minimum wage job that has mm -hmm. to sometimes work two jobs to take yes. care of their family and so mm -hmm. forth. So I don't want to be idealistic about that, but yeah. I think that's why we're, that, that's a project that we're working on to try to get rid of wage slavery. Mm -hmm. Wage slavery is a huge problem in our, because it keeps people from being who God made them to be. It get, mm -hmm. keeps them from having time to work on that stamp collection, for example, mm -hmm. if they want to, you know, mm -hmm. or to be with their kids and walk on the beach because they've got to work two jobs. Yeah. So that that's that's part of the fallen order. That's mm -hmm. that's something we're fighting against. That's what Christ came to overturn. Mm -hmm. Rig the Magnificat, you know, the poor are lifted in the kingdom mm -hmm. and the rich are brought down. So things are being made right. Justice is being done and so forth. So that, that, that is how I, I would like to frame it. And it seems to me this is the center of what theology is all about. And that's why uh, I, I think Rob Banks' work, they're redeeming, redeeming the routine. Uh, Matt Kamick and Wilson, uh, uh, Corey. Corey Wilson just wrote a book together on work and worship, which I highly recommend, which yeah. is doing just recently, the same thing that Robert Banks was trying to do. Totally. So these are these are great, great uh, former students of mine. So I I I I, I want to hold up that that whole tradition, and 
just sort of give honor to people like Rob Banks, uh, Australian, retired now in Australia. And, um, you know, Ward Gask, who just died last year, Carl Armading, people who founded Regent College who wanted to, to do this, uh, yeah. to, to see theology be a part of everyday life. Yeah. Nobody's been completely successful at that, but, but it's a project that I think we should all be working on. And yeah. I'm so grateful for your layman's lounge because this is this is what you want to do. I know. I, I I'm so grateful. Yeah, we actually had the honor of talking to James Houston, one of the founders of Regent. Oh, like yeah. two months ago. Dear and he man. kept going back to this notion of what he called child theology. And I was like, oh, I hope you could write that book, sir. Just this notion of because I'm like, you know, I think analytically and whatever, but at the end of the day, I just you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I just want to like, I, I have this disposition in me to please God. And like, I like pleasing him and I'm sure he likes being pleased. So I did have a question of, of you were talking about Robert Banks and, and this label gets thrown around a lot, this term. And I think I have a hang up on it. It's almost like as soon as I heard the term, I get like, I almost can't focus on anything else. And that's the, it's, that's this notion of like, well, where is God in, you know, in art or in my work or the lilies, or they might say, you know, God, God's presence, we, we, you know, we, we are to, um, God's, God is there. Now for me, again, it's just super analytical. I'm like, well, what is the nature of God being there? Like, because for me, I have like zero experiential feelings or sense of god being there i love kuiper's meditations but they are depressing to me I'm like this guy is like he his feet don't touch the ground when he walks he's caught up in the third heaven he's every single one i'm like who is this guy so i i you know and the people who are really into that that thing i'm so into that but i just have no experience of it i think that's why i'm drawn to this mundane that okay i could glorify god and um as i'm engaging in the lilies i could do what i'm supposed to do but people but i get thrown off with that that added thing of the the presence of god i'm like man i can't control that i can't control that <laughs> or how do i feel that yeah yeah how am i supposed to hurry up and feel that guys? yeah no no i i, I hear you i hear you and I want to avoid that sort of the mystical journey. I mean, although I love, <laughs> I love Bonaventure and I love Dante. I teach Dante's Divine Comedy, but I, I don't think we're, we're, we're headed, although I do think a vision of God in heaven is our, is our goal. But I think far more important than that is to ask the question, which you've just raised, which I think one of the most fundamental questions in all theology, and that is, how does God show up? Um, we, we all believe, and we've been taught, that God is present everywhere. Well, that's true. Okay, what, what, is that, what does that amount to? <laughs> so it's very important that you understand that God's presence isn't sort of like everywhere, like vapor, you know, or like ether, you know, or like the air, you know. That, that's not how God's present. Mm. God is everywhere present in the sense that God is at every moment working on the project of new creation in the old creation. Wow. That's what God is busy Whoa. doing. Now, that. if you want to get on board, that's what you're doing too. That's what we're working on too. And, and that, as I argue in, in the book, Facts on Real Freedom is joining in God's project of working on new creation. That's what we're most free. In other words, and what does that involve? Well, I think Christ gives that contour and that, that I argue in the chapter on Christ. I don't know if you've gotten there yet, but uh, that, that Christ is busy working for mutual self-giving relationships with each other, mm. forming communities of mutual benefit yeah. and caring for the earth and its, and its future. These are the things that seems to me are our crystallization of the teachings of Christ. Mm. 
in uh, in especially the Sermon on the Mount, but it, but be it elsewhere as well. So that's that's what when we're busy working on the project of forming communities of mutual benefit, which is what the church is supposed to look like, by the way, as a sort of modeled community. But I think it's meant to be all communities are to be that kind of community, communities of mutual benefit. Yeah. That, that people care for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then that we're, we're people of mutuality, of relational uh, humility, where we're willing to give ourselves for the sake of mm -hmm. another. So, mm -hmm. And that we're willing to care for the earth. I, those are the things that seems to me give concrete substance to yeah. our, our Christian calling. It, that's the uh, that's the Kyperian impulse to have just a thousand organizations. I love I love that. Um, let Let's go off that. Let's go to those first few chapters of Revelation, and we could speak to them in light of the last. I'm sorry, first few chapters of Genesis, and we could speak to them in light of um, post Pentecost as well as Revelation. But you know, this might sort of this might be. We, we sort of have no way to know, but I, I often wonder about the nature of God's presence in, in this garden in Eden, right? Um, I know, you know, you wrote, you wrote about themes in the Old Testament and, you know, and a lot of people say, well, he was there when he came in that wind. It was like in judgment. It wasn't just to hang out, regardless if it was there to hang out with his, with his children or to judge them or whatever. It, if the goal, like a lot of this all hinges on the fact that a lot of a lot of people say the goal of Christianity is sort of like just being with God, like you know, let's say a relationship with God. And if a relationship is is manifest felt presence or something like that, what even then could have been the nature of that that spatial relationship with God that Adam and Eve had, for example. Where was God when they were eating the fruit? You know what I mean? He wasn't there to say, hey, remember what I told you guys? So like. He was there. Well, well, my question for you is if he was like right next to them physically in body or or was it 100%? Were they supposed to every single thing they do? Were they supposed to like pick the orange and then look at God and then God gives them a thumbs up, you know, and then they go and they're like you know, they go to sleep or maybe they're about to have sex and they're supposed to give God a thumbs up. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I'm curious, curious uh, what you think about the nature of God's presence, um, you know, sort of the pre-fall and, and how it shakes out, you know, post-Pentecost. Well, I think that, no, I think that the, the, the nature of God's presence would have been manifest by their being good stewards of creation. Mm. Uh Okay. As I argue in the book, there's the, the lang even the language of taking care of creation and, and to watching over it. That language um, is, is worship language. In other words, to do that is to, it, the same word is used to take care of it is the same word that's used to keep the law. Wow. So in other words, to, to take care of it is a kind of sacred duty. Now, a lot of people maybe do that, and they, they're sort of worshiping Gaia or something like that, but still they're doing something good when they yeah. do that. There's exactly. something good about that, and God said, yeah, I like that, I like that, you know, um, and, and it's a way of he's saying to them, you know, this is, this is why you're here, mm. this is why you're here. Mm. Now, I, I, I want to quickly add that, that if you do the things that God says and then avoid the limitations that have been built into creation, which is what the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about, there's limitations built in. And we can't be the Prometheus to steal fire from the gods, which is how that's been interpreted, I think, quite, quite rightly. But rather, we, we see this as a part of our everyday life, naming the animals. Yeah. That's, that's the beginning of science right there. That's totally. the beginning of philosophy. Philosophy names things, you know. Mm. So that's, that's doing God's work. Mm. Mm. And that's how we experience God, I think.
You ask a, a scientist, a believing scientist, he might tell you the place he feels closest to God is when he's in the in his watching these things happen under the microscope. Right, right, That's right, where right. he feels closest to God. You know, where, it's funny because I don't know if you just read it, but I think two days ago someone released, maybe it was from like Plow Quarterly, this this overview of John Muir. Like John Muir was that the guy who he was like a botanist or whatever, like hiked all over like America or something. Yeah. And apparently he had he's from he was from Scotland or something like that. Apparently he had all of by the time he was eight, he had all of the New Testament memorized and the oh. Psalms or something. But really? um the he was a Presbyterian. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess when he when he came out, he um Whenever he would write, you just see out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You, everything was just sort of echoes. But he's he said something. I read a quote in there, and they, he said something like about considering the lilies. And he's all, you know what? I really did. I considered them for about eight hours. And he really derived a great amount of joy in the face of God. And I thought that was just so cool. So she connected with our lilies discussion. Um this has been good. As I'm winding down, I want to do just sort of the final section to hit. And that is, um, someone just said something so obvious to me, to me a few days ago, or I didn't say it to me, I read it and it blew my mind. I think it was um, Patrick Schreiner wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, I think. And, in, and they had posted something on Crossway and he just said this throwaway, con, this throwaway line to lead in what it, what else he's gonna he was gonna say and he said something essentially and you know most of the new testament is about jew gentile relations in light of the gospel and i'm like oh my gosh it sure seems like that to me it sure does seem like it's all about the jew gentile you know what i mean i mean i even just listened to you on the fuller studio going over galatians and it really is rooted in that but you were able to sort of draw out uh implications or whatever so my question here has to do with theology and you, you often hear this term like imaginative theology. Um, so, or, or like, you know, essentially running with implications. Right. And so that is clearly something I'm drawn to in you because, um, because we're not all just Jews and Gentiles, you know, in the first, second century or whatever. So my question for you, what is the role and guidelines for doing sort of implicational theology or imaginative theology or, or whatever you might call it? What is that something that we're called to do? Or do we just sort of stay in that context of Jew-Gentile relationships where it really just mainly seems like it's about salvation in the most, in the sense of just, you know, sort of getting to heaven or whatever. But then, yeah, yeah. I'd just love to hear you sort of talk, talk on that. Well, I think in a certain sense that the Jew and Gentile relationship in, uh, in the New Testament becomes a proxy for uh, lar the larger issue of what God is up to in Christ in reconciling all things and all peoples so to good. himself, you know? I mean, what I love about uh, Acts chapter 2 is that everyone was gathered in Jerusalem at the temple when God poured out the Holy Spirit. Mm. And he wasn't interested in the disciples there. That, that's not what he was, that's not what that's about. Mm. You know, the listing, it, it says peoples from all the world were there. Yeah. And then it proceeds to listen, list 15. I counted them, and very few people I think have done that. 15 ethnicities. Mm. Who was interested in those people? God was. Oh, yeah. God was interested so in them. That's who we wanted to bring into his project. Mm. So that the, 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 the struggle between the Jews and Gentiles, of course, the Gentiles include all of those 15 people uh, in a certain sense. Right because they were the ones who were the non-Jews in a certain sense. But uh, it's very clear that 
Paul says in, in his letters that he wanted in Christ to make of the two one flesh, but not to lose their identity as Jews and Gentiles, but to bring them together in a common project of the new creation. So that, that's the way I, I, I read that, because Jew, uh, I, I think it's very important that we not, we understand with gratitude how much we owe to Judaism, that we are, we, we are all Jewish Christians in a certain yeah, sense. Yeah. We have to be. And, so, and uh, it, uh, our brother is Paul and Jesus, who spent a lot of time in the temple. <laughs> right, right. So... Okay, so we've got, you know, we've got the New Testament. We have that section in Acts and the Gentiles coming. Um, Acts 10, yeah, with Cornelius. What, yeah. what do we do? How does one get a theology or a Christian view of stamp collecting or, or even considering the lilies? So we've got, you know, sort of that, that command or that, that statement to consider the lilies. How does one then build that out, you know, and, and draw out implications and analyze it. And should we do that? Or should we just not, or at what point are we, um, you know, we're told not go beyond what is written. At what point do, are we going beyond what is written? And at what point are we um, just drawing out implications? Well, thank you. That, that's, that's really the key question. And I'm glad you raised it because one of the points of the book of the facts on the ground is to remember how much the Old Testament is indebted to Egyptian and Babylonian wisdom. Mm. There's even evidence that some of the laws or a lot of the laws that ended up in the Ten Commandments and in Exodus and Deuteronomy were widely shared in the ancient Near East. They are things that Israel discovered. They are things that common were commonplaces in the ancient Near East. But God affirmed them for his people and saying, these become now your special possession. But it was a, it was a, a kind of borrowing that was taking place. And I don't see why, when the Old Testament is finished, we shouldn't expect that God will want us to borrow widely, as widely as possible from the goodness and the wisdom that we see, even in other religions, but certainly in other cultures. We want to, we want to borrow. We want to be humble and learn from all these other places mm -hmm. as much as we can, because mm -hmm. God is interested in them. Yeah, yeah, God yeah. wants, and God affirms the good things they do, mm -hmm. even as he he, he, he will judge the, the evil in, in them. Mm. So the, now this is not about saving people. I mean, I, again, wisdom is not salvific. Mm. Salvation comes through the work of God in Jesus Christ. And God, has to, God is the only savior, ultimately, at the end of the day. But God affirms wisdom and wants wisdom to be a, 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 a kind of a pathway to thanksgiving and praise and worship mm -hmm. of him. Yeah, amen. I know Stephen Garber says um, of common grace, you know, this idea of common grace and, you know, cosm common wisdom. He says, when my wife kisses me, it's not a, you know, salvific grace. It's just a common grace of a good, of a good God who allows and champions. And as you made clear, is gets the credit for that kiss, you know, for That's that, right. that Setting Amen. up that kiss. Um, I could say this is like probably the first or second best interview I've ever had. Um, thank you like so, so much. Yeah. Please, if there's anyone else that that's like you that thinks this way, please let me know. We want to, you know, we want to learn how to parse Greek and we want to learn like the immediate context of the culture. But at the end of the day, our, our, our own context is stamps, lilies, barbecue, cold beer, church on Sunday, trying not to be a jerk, trying not to be Amen. lazy. So I just really, really appreciate your labors. This, yeah. this was wonderful. The, uh, we've been talking with William A. Dearness and the, um, his most recent book just came out in December is The Facts on the Ground, A Wisdom Theology of Culture. Um, 
just as we as we close out, do you, do you have any final words or anything that you would commend to us, recommend anything for us to consider, anything for us, just any sort of final word? Yeah, I, I want to <clears throat> remind everyone of, of, of Luther's famous way of putting th this whole thing is that don't think you have to climb up to heaven to encounter God, but God has come down to us. That's what the incarnation is all about. And uh, so that's, that's where we find God in the midst of everyday life, in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our joy. God, God is there and God redeems it all. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, very, very much. It's an honor to be with you, Jason. God bless you. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad.